Hi, welcome back to Knowledge Wins, your podcast from the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School and the Special Operations Center of Excellence, where we explore a variety of topics to enable a more holistic understanding of Army Special Operations. From the Forces Generation side to the evolving role of Army Special Operations, leadership, and more. I'm your host for today's episode, Major Linda Chung, a Civil Affairs Officer by trade and a member of the Commander's Initiatives Group here at the Special Warfare Center and School. Today's guest will be Major Travis Clemens, the author of a recently published Joint Special Operations University monograph titled Special Operations Forces, Civil Affairs, and Great Power Competition. Major Clemens is currently a Civil Affairs Company Commander in the 91st Civil Affairs Battalion, Special Operations Airborne. If you're just joining us now, please be sure to check out our previous episode, Part 1, where Major Travis Clemens talks about his JSAO monograph titled Soft Civil Affairs and Great Power Competition. The fourth domain is armed conflict, uh, and it is still a, a valid domain, d- despite the, the nuclear question, if you will. Uh, armed conflict is still a valid domain, I think, as we all know, in competition. In the military, in a lot of military circles, we kind of get fixated on armed conflict. We think that that is the competition. Uh, I can't say how many discussions I've had when I've been talking about, about my work in great power competition with folks in the military, even some, some mid-level and senior leadership, and they'll immediately start talking about large-scale combat operations. Uh, and I gotta be like, like, like no, that's, that's such a small part. And in most cases, if you have like a real large-scale combat operations, all this understanding of the current environment goes out the window because an event that large will change the international landscape in such a way that you got to start from zero again to understand it. But large-scale co- combat operations is a, a potential, and you'll see it in, in isolated cases such as in, in Georgia in 2008. Um, but really when we talk about armed conflict in, in the modern competitive environment, it's, it's going back to that state-sponsored insurgencies. Uh, which you know we see that still now. Um, you know it's it's also in a lot of ways the deterrence factor. Also, we'll re- refer to a lot as uh, anti-access area denial A two A D. That's what we see in most cases when we talk armed conflict. So an example of this is in the South China Sea. The PRC has been building up uh, what's been called artificial islands on a lot of these reefs in order to stake a claim in the South China Sea. If you look at a map and you start putting range rings around these, these artificial islands of you know, missile defense systems, um, anti-ship cruise missile uh, ranges, you realize that they have or can very soon effectively cut off access to the mainland from naval forces. And that forces us as a country and, and any other country that has naval forces in that area or potential uh, defense interests in that area to relook at how we're doing things. And that's all they need to do. They don't need to sink a carrier. They just need us to know that they can because then we are going to change how we interact with that country. If we know we can't get access to, uh, to the Chinese coast to protect, for example, t- uh, Taiwan, that changes a lot of things in how we, how we deal with Taiwan, our international or our, our foreign policies, uh, our relationships with other countries. Because if we know we can't get there in the first place uh, because of the island chains, as, as it referred to, uh, then that has a huge effect in the competitive environment on us. And so just, just by having forces and capabilities in certain places, um, that's still a form of armed conflict. 
even if there's nobody shooting yet. Uh, the the same thing goes with Russia. Now they go a little bit more on the state-sponsored insurgency in a lot of cases, uh, or isolated cases of, of large-scale combat operations. Uh, Crimea, for example, even though ostensibly Russia was not in Crimea, as as Putin would claim, um, there was still major fighting throughout, and there still is fighting going out through eastern uh, Ukraine that is sponsored in a lot of cases by Russians. Russian forces have been identified as crossing across the border into Ukraine, um, especially with the case of uh, MH17. You know, there's a lot of a lot of evidence that shows it was a, a Russian buck missile that had crossed the border into Ukraine that shot that down. Um, and so this is still in these isolated cases. You'll still see um, combat operations going on. But the the caveat to all that, of course, is is that nuclear pressure. Uh, what you are not likely to see is major uh, armored divisions rolling towards uh, a great powers border. You're not likely to see NATO divisions rolling east across Europe because as soon as they get close enough to Russia that Russia now is starting to think about using that nuclear button, all, all bets are off again. And so nobody wants to get to that point. And so it's, it's understanding how do we use these levers to avoid getting to that point. And there's a lot of those levers available that you don't even need to in a lot of cases. And then the, the fifth domain was international institutions. And I talk about this a little bit, uh, but there's not a lot of roles for soft CA within the, the international institutions domain. And these are the institutions like the UN, NATO, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, World Bank, AIIB, that um, various countries have memberships with, and through these memberships, it can influence other countries. The UN is a great example of these. China will often leverage Belt and Road Initiative contracts with foreign countries in order to elicit votes in the UN for certain things, or votes in ASEAN, the, um, the, it's a, the East Asian organization. Uh, and so it's combining these domains, but in a lot of cases, it's just providing pressure through other means, through diplomatic means on countries. Being a uh, one of five in the, the UN Security Council, gives huge dividends to the PRC's ability to influence the U.S. and their foreign policy. Um, and same with Russia. And so that's, that's another way. The AIIB, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, tied to BRI, BRI contracts and projects, they can exert a lot of influence on these countries because they can flow a lot of cash in with very few strings attached. Whereas the World Bank has certain strings attached, which... Generally, you know, for, for most of us, we would have no issue with, but, but it does limit the access the World Bank has and the influence the World Bank can have on some of these countries. Uh, and so China is finding these gaps on Western institutions and then filling them with their own institutions or influencing international institutions to just better support Chinese policies. And you'll see that in a lot of cases, um, especially with the South China Sea and uh, the, the UN ruling on that the, the islands are do not belong to China. You see the PRC trying to gain more and more access, more and more leverage within a lot of these UN bodies that make those rulings, so that in the future they will hopefully make rulings in favor of PRC policies. So kind of given all of that context and how you've 
described how China and Russia compete with the U.S. in those five domains. To circle back to your original research question, can you talk a little about a little bit about the four roles that you've identified for SoftCA? Yeah. So, really looking at at that plane in flight, and then understanding what our capabilities are, and that was based on doctrine, organization, training, and and equipping, um, and then the five domains that we that I identified. I came up with four different roles. The first two are sort of related, but I think they're unique enough to, to separate them. Uh, the first one was initial entry. And so we, we see this a lot already. Uh, soft CA forces are oftentimes the only deployed military element, U.S. military element in a, in a country. Um, they're establishing relationships with the U.S. country team, with the host nation, and then later, if the situation warrants and, and it makes sense, more U.S. forces may follow to solve certain problems that the country team has in that country or to support that host nation country. Um, because we regularly interact with U.S. country teams, because we train specifically on cultural factors in these countries and dealing with the, the host nation governments, with NGOs, and, and the various civil side of, uh, of our interactions that gives us a lot of the flexibility to set the conditions for any follow-on um, forces that, that, you know, through a campaign plan and, and work through the embassy, if they desire more forces in that area, Soft CA uh, is, a, is uniquely positioned to provide a lot of that initial um, foundation to, to bring them in, building the relationships and getting the authorities pushed through and the permissions. The, the second role is reconnaissance just in and of itself. Um, and so a lot of times we'll, we'll talk about civil reconnaissance. And I went a little bit more generic with this because it's more than just civil reconnaissance that we do. Because of our unique access to different areas with where we can generally travel in, in any permissive or semi-permissive environment, we have, in most cases, more freedom of maneuver than a lot of the, the other U.S. forces. Even, even the country teams and USAID can't get to a lot of areas that we can get to um, in in many countries we're in. And so we're just the eyes and ears for the TSOCs and for the GCCs throughout the world in a lot of cases. With our interactions uh, through civil reconnaissance, we also can answer a lot of questions and provide a lot of the atmospherics on what's going on in those countries just by talking to the various organizations of people that we do. And then the, the third domain is engage and influence. And this is where we get into less of the passive reconnaissance and observation and more of the shaping the environment uh, that we're engaging with. And really, in the, the great power competition, um, and I, I want to make sure it was, it was clear with this when I was writing it, we engage in influence in a CT or coin environment all the time. And so I'm not necessarily saying we, don't, we shouldn't do engage in influence in those environments, but specifically within the great power environment, there's three main ways that, that we, we engage in influence. And the first is to inoculate a population. So going back to the, the domains, the political and uh, population, political warfare domain, those can cause a lot of problems for U.S. foreign policy. You know, an adversary's information operations in a country can cause a lot of problems for, for what we're trying to do potentially in that country or, or in the region. And so in many cases, populations need to be inoculated from those, those foreign or those adversary IO um, or information operations. If you look at 
eastern Ukraine, for example, there's a lot of the fighting comes from infighting within the population that already lives there. If you have vulnerable communities and you can get to them first, and a lot of times they will understand that messaging that is coming to them is adversarial propaganda. If the, the messaging gets to them first, um, and there's a study, once again by Rand, uh, that where they showed through, through their research that the kind of the law of primacy takes effect. The, the first message you hear is the one you're generally going to stick to. So if that first message is adversary propaganda, you're not going to be able to, in most cases, refute it or, or try to pull people away from that. But if you can get there first and inoculate that population against the, the adversary propaganda or adversary messaging, then you have a much better chance of them resisting it in the first place. And because of our access directly to communities through key leaders, key influencers, in a great power environment, uh, as part of a broader campaigning construct, um, that is a unique role that you that soft CA can fill that nobody else really is positioned to, is to get to these communities, identify vulnerable communities, get to them, and help inoculate them against whatever messaging either is or may be coming down to them. If it's a situation where you can't get ahead of the messaging, um, you're probably not going to have much luck in trying to refute whatever that message is. The, the more you try to refute it, the more people dig in their heels. Uh, we see that now just with American politics. You're, but instead what you can do, and what this, this RAND study by Chris Paul uh, described, is you can counter the effect that the adversary messaging is trying to get at. For example, if uh, Russia is trying to influence voting somewhere in Eastern Europe, and they want to get a specific population to not vote uh, for or against whatever, whatever measure is coming up or whatever politician is running. So they're trying to convince people not to go out and vote. As a force, we can help counter that effect, which means working with local leadership and communities and NGOs and organizations to decrease the barriers to voting in those vulnerable populations. So that's whether that's organizing transportation to polling stations, helping organizing or providing funding through various mechanisms to build, build or uh, staff more polling stations, making it easier for that population to vote. So despite the messaging coming from an adversary, you're breaking down the barriers and you're countering the effect of that messaging through other ways. And that's, that's the counter side of that engaging influence. And the third one is mobilizing uh, a population. And so this is rather than working to, to decrease the effect of an enemy's um, activities in the, the political and, and uh, population political domain, it's getting a population to mobilize towards a U.S. goal or objective. And that's, once again, that's, that's through these communities and through these networks that we build in just our day-to-day -day operations and getting them to, to actually do something that we want. Maybe it is, you know, to, to create an effect of we want to support, uh, you know, humanitarian efforts, for example, or if there are adversary activities going on in a country, it's mobilizing people to counter those or resist those. Um, or it's, and we go into this a little bit more in the, the fourth domain, it's, it's supporting that resistance. And so that fourth domain is support to resistance. A lot of people will describe unconventional warfare 
Um, this is a little bit broader in concept because the, the purpose may not be to coerce or overthrow a foreign government, but it's to work through the networks that we have, the organizations and the communities that we build relationships with in order to either resist um, an adversary's objectives. So where that's building an, an actual resilient resistance, civil resistance network in Eastern Europe, or, you know, for example, in Taiwan, if, if uh, the PRC decides to invade Taiwan. Because by, by building this strong resistance network, you deter uh, an adversary from taking action, or potentially deter an adversary from taking action because it changes their calculus on how easily they're going to be able to maintain control over these areas. Alternatively, you can build support to resistance to resist an enemy that is occupying the country or has activities in that country uh, or area. And, and that's just the classic resistance efforts of shadow governance and um, civil disobedience, if it comes to that, or you know, even, uh, even non-lethal sabotage type, type operations to disrupt whatever the adversary's goals are with that region and just decrease their ability to maintain control over the population. And then finally, uh, the last piece is, is undermining an adversary's activities uh, through our civil networks. Um, and that's utilizing just the, the mechanisms that are there to slow or increase costs of an adversary. If you use your, your network to build awareness of Chinese activities, um, chances are you're going to open people's eyes to what the PRC tends to do in other countries. More scrutiny will be applied to uh, PRC projects in that area, uh, which then would support, if that's our policy, you know, then that would support uh, increasing the effect or slowing down how long the PRC uh, gains access to, to a certain infrastructure facility, whether it's a port, whether it's a road, whether it's a, you know, a mine or a factory that they're, they're building somewhere. But by just working through those, those over and, and above board mechanisms of bringing to light a lot of these things, providing uh, translation services for PRC contracts in a lot of cases or third-party uh, assessments of the contracts. And in a lot of cases, the PRC or the companies, the Chinese companies that are doing business uh, in these, these countries, the contracts don't see light between anybody other than the two parties that are signing them. So nobody else gets eyes on them. And so just by helping establish services, provide funding, or working with translators that can just help bring those contracts to light will bring a lot of more scrutiny on on some of the situations that these third these uh, third nations are being being put in and and that can influence how how those countries behave towards the PRC example and this is this is all built on the idea of that that you have to have a uh, consolidated and well thought out campaign and policy within these countries too because there's a lot of op options that you can apply but it all depends on what we're trying to do in these areas and that goes back to the, the joint concept of integrative campaigning, of having a full campaign um, to build out that these roles. And so those, based on our capabilities and the current environment, like those were the four roles that, that really I saw that, that SoftCA is most, um, is best positioned to fill that no other organization within uh, the U.S. Army uh, and probably DOD writ large, really is positioned to fill. Um, SoftCA has the capabilities 
in a certain way that, that nobody else does. And that way, none of these are necessarily... Uh, they, there's a lot of things that other people can do, but nobody is set up, no organization is set up to do the, or to fill these roles as well as soft CA is. Right, right. So finally, uh, since we are the Special Operations Center of Excellence here and the proponent for civil affairs, can you talk about some of the um, capability gaps that you identified and some of the solutions, DOML PFP solutions that you uh, came up with? Yeah. So the, the big part is once, once you identify, okay, here's the roles we're going to fill and, and you know, within the environment we're going to fill them in, the, the conclusion I came to very, very quickly is that we're not optimally set up to do that. Uh, yes, we are the best source or the best organization to fill these roles, but we are not best set up to fill those roles. And that's where you start building the airplane now to, do, to, to fill the roles that you, you've already figured out it can, but to do it better. And the, some of the things that, that I identified, one um, is the, the four-person four team, in a lot of cases, a, is a hindrance to us. Uh, it, it provides a really small footprint, which decreases the, the concern from a lot of country teams, uh, decreases the political risk of having U.S. forces in an area when it's just four people, but it also means, in a lot of cases, it hinders our ability to move around. We have to get other people to go with us just to meet minimum force requirements or just mitigate the basic risk uh, to be able to drive, for example, two vehicles or three vehicles uh, so you have enough recovery assets if something breaks down. And so uh, one of the things I identified was the size of team uh, recommendation was to increase the size of team to, to at least a, a six-person element. Um, and one of those additions should probably be a medic in most cases, so you can run true split-offs, uh, so a medic can go with each element um, and cover more ground in these areas. Another one having to do a lot with the team uh, is really we lack right now any sort of specialty teams within an organization. So going back to uh, the South China Sea and the uh, Indo-PACOM, uh, many of the, the countries that, that we deal with are island nations or you know, have large, large coastlines um, often where most of the population is. If we're sending teams to these areas under a policy to disrupt, increase risk, increase cost to a foreign adversary, the risk to our teams increases which means the skills they need uh, need to be much more honed to that, that environment they're in. So if they're working around water, for example, and part of their uh, plan is to move, whether it's on islands, between islands, or, or, or even as an emergency um, to, uh, to escape, they, they need specialty training you know, on maritime operations, on boats, on swimming. Um, not necessarily saying we need you know, scuba teams because uh, you know, we, we probably don't. But we definitely need teams that understand how tides affect things, how currents affect things, and know how to do the analysis uh, for their operations. And, and, even, and this was something we even saw, see in Africa, uh, whether you're on the coast or where, you know, if you're, you're near Lake Chad, there's lots of populations on Lake Chad, uh, but there isn't that resident knowledge of how to handle maritime and, and riverine operations um, within the force. It's a... You know, that's, that's just one example. Um, you know, do you, in a lot of cases, populations may be in high-altitude areas. You know, 
So it would probably make sense to have at least some sort of resident expertise within each AOR, so each battalion in our case, um, that is trained and maintains uh, maintains those skill sets on mountain operations, high altitude operations. Um, you know, you see this within ODAs a lot. Is you'll have specialty ODAs. You have your your freefall teams. You have your mountain teams, and then usually uh, you know a scuba team, and and uh, the rest are generally a, a ground infill team. And it's not to say every company has all these. But each battalion will have a couple of each of the specialties. So if a situation comes up where you needed to deploy a team to a very specific environment, either, hey, A, have a team that's trained to do that already, or you have the resident knowledge to help train everybody else if everybody else is going. The other real big uh, gap that I found, and the brigade is working on this really hard, and so we're making a lot of progress, but it's really institutionalizing uh, that analytical process. Um, we we refer to it as, as human network analysis, um, and like I said, like we've been making leaps and bounds of, of getting where we need to be, um, but it's still in its nascent stages, and it still hasn't fully been pushed out to to the entire force. And so my recommendation is that we have to establish some sort of robust and like academically or professionally accepted methodology for how we analyze the information we gain. Every team that goes out, every time they go out, they come back and they write reports that are filled with information. These can be sometimes pushed through through uh, the normal operations channels and um, intelligence channels, but there's no way, there's no applied meth- uh, methodology methodology on how we actually do the analysis on them. And in a lot of cases, it's just an ad hoc uh, analysis that we do, whether it's at the company level or if there's a, a few staff folks in a, a J9 section to sit and look at the data. But we really aren't applying rigorous analysis to to this information. And the big part is just even understanding the networks themselves, uh, the relationships between the people and how those relationships influence those people. Um, and that's something that every every civil affairs professional should be completely fluent in understanding. So anybody can go to that role and sit down and do the analysis. Um, it's, it's very academically intensive and you know it's a very technical capability, but that's the one that we that I found that, that we are still lacking across the board. We, we got our people that are really good at it and then we usually utilize them, but it's something every single 38 series officer NCO should be able to do at a professional level, and so that's going to require a lot of a lot of training, a lot of changing and understanding how we train our forces in order to maintain those skill sets. But once you have that within the force, and you have the ability to describe whether it's the effects we're having or um, on the reconnaissance side, really building that that civil common operating picture. Um, if everybody's doing it in the same way, and it's a you know an institutionalized method. Everybody understands it, and you can really communicate uh, a lot of what we see and what we do to outside commanders. Right. Well, thank you for all those recommendations. I'll, I'm going to make sure to tell CA proponent to listen to this podcast so they can um, implement some of the recommendations you made. Uh, I think you're going to be uh, pleasantly surprised that some of the recommendations you did make, they are currently working on with the doctrine and, and the training piece. So stay tuned for 
things that Proponent is, is rolling out. And um, I just want to close by asking if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, it's um, so I, I came into the branch in, in 2014, and the difference between now and then has been night and day. Like it's it's phenomenal to see how quickly we're moving towards towards what what appears to me to be is this common understanding of what we do as a branch. Um, and so I gotta I gotta throw my shout out to to the Naval Postgraduate School too, because uh, if you're looking at at really thinking thinking hard about what we do in soft and, and our roles, uh, there's very few institutions that let you spend some time doing that. And, and that's really what, what brought this about. Right. Well, Major Clemens, I can't thank you enough for joining us today on our podcast, Knowledge Wins. Thank you once again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, listeners, thanks again for listening to our episode on Special Operations Forces, Civil Affairs, and Great Power Competition. Once again, remember to check out our notes section for all the links to the references mentioned today and other related podcasts. You can find them all on our U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our channel and tune in for our next episode. Stay safe, and remember, knowledge wins.